0: Hey, everybody, I'm Robin Doolittle, and I'm filling in for Manica today. You're listening to The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. On Wednesday, the actor Johnny Depp won his defamation case against ex-wife and actress Amber Heard.
1: In the Washington Post online edition, quote, I spoke up against sexual violence and faced our culture's wrath. That has to change, end quote. Do you find that Mr. Depp has proven all the elements of defamation? Answer, yes.
0: I'm an investigative journalist here at The Globe, and I've done a lot of reporting on sexual violence and gender discrimination. I've looked at how police handle sexual assault cases, and more specifically, how rape myths and stereotypes impact those investigations. I wrote a book about Me Too. I'm deeply interested in these issues. And I also confess that I have tried to completely avoid this Johnny Depp and Amber Heard defamation trial. I hate it. I hate what it says about all of us and our celebrity obsession and voyeurism. I hate seeing how gleefully social media has reveled in tearing down a woman who has alleged domestic violence. I hate that I know people are viewing this as some test of Me Too, rather than evaluating it on its individual merits. But the fact that society is attaching so much significance to this trial is exactly why we need to talk about it. Depp won his case, but in many ways the verdict didn't matter. He'd already won in the court of public opinion. And for the record, the jury also found that Depp had defamed Heard, but that's not the detail making headlines. It's also worth noting that Depp previously lost a libel case against the Sun tabloid in the UK after the paper labeled him a wife-beater. In that case, the judge found Heard was, quote, the victim of sustained and multiple assaults by Mr. Depp. A few hours before the jury came back yesterday, I spoke with Nicole Badera, a sociologist who researches sexual violence and how it relates to our society and culture, to unpack what this case has meant for survivors who want to come forward, rape myths and stereotypes, and also about a person's ability to defend themselves against an accusation. You're listening to The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. Nicole, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Just really quickly, in case some of our listeners haven't been following this case, can you give us the Cole's Notes version? What is going on? How did we get here? I am amazed by anyone who's been able to avoid this case for so long.
1: Um, (laughs) The main thing that's happening is that Amber Heard wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post in which she identified as an abuse survivor. She never named a perpetrator, and she wrote this op-ed with the intent of supporting the Me Too movement and talking about how important it is that we as a society address issues of intimate partner violence and sexual assault better. But Johnny Depp feels that that op-ed is defamatory because the two of them were married and she had filed a restraining order against him in the past. She is, He assumed
0: that everyone would assume as well that he was her abuser. So what are you thinking about as you've been watching this case for the last six weeks One of the main things I've been thinking about, and I think this is why people are comparing it to the Me
1: Too movement so much, is the idea that women can share their experiences of abuse and seek support and actually get support is pretty new in our society. I have been researching sexual violence for a lot longer than the Me Too movement has been around. And when the Me Too moment happened, when the hashtag went viral, one thing I immediately noticed was I had this question. In my interview guide, where I would ask all of the survivors I interviewed, have you ever told anyone? The story that you've told me today. And very often they would say no. And then after Me Too went viral, they started to say yes. And then they couldn't even tell you how many people they had told because they were just openly identifying as survivors in their lives. And so I see that as what's really at stake here. One of the reasons why in the past survivors have been hesitant to come forward is because they're afraid of being ridiculed, criticized, harassed. They're afraid of defamation lawsuits, which actually are pretty common when survivors come forward about what they've experienced. And so that's what I think is the most important part of this case is protecting women specifically, but all survivors, right? To speak freely about what they've experienced.
0: You mentioned you were impressed. I've been able to avoid this case. And I've also been impressed with myself and uh, ability to avoid it because it is everywhere. It is mm-hmm. uh, in my inbox every day. It is flooding my social media. It's memes. It's YouTube clips. Uh, I think something like 18.6 billion uh, people have viewed the hashtag justice for Johnny Depp on TikTok. And what's interesting to me, not that this is any scientific poll or whatnot, but the hashtag justice for Amber Heard has only 65 million views. So this is obviously being hugely watched uh, on, on social media. And also you can kind of see where the public is at based on those views. I mean, what does how people uh, are viewing this case on social media say about how we are digesting it?
1: The case got a lot of interest Because a lot of people are interested in things that have something to do with sort of this true crime, with this type of gender-based violence. But there was a lot of misinformation from the very beginning. Most of these people were not experts. And they made some pretty simple errors in judgment early on that really turned the tide to be focused on supporting Johnny Depp. So, for example, we have this tendency in our culture when we're looking at these cases to try to find the smoking gun, that one little Sherlock Holmes-style detail that'll just blow the case wide open. And TikTok stars from the very beginning and people who became TikTok stars over this case were pulling up all of these little tiny pieces of irrelevant evidence as a way to prove that
0: Amber Heard had lied. And that's how this case originally became sensationalized. I did have to, in preparation for this interview, properly debrief myself on this case. and. As I'd been reviewing the trial, as it, it seems what's happened here is we have Amber Heard made an accusation of domestic violence against Johnny Depp. And during the course of this case, there have been allegations that she was also violent with him and other kind of unflattering details about their relationship and the two of them. And people have really glommed on to that. And it's interesting to watch the reaction because... Where it's directed to Amber Heard is negative and where it's directed to Johnny Depp seems very positive. What do you think is so important to the broader discussion around intimate partner violence that this case is carrying?
1: Well, one of the reasons that intimate partner violence is so prevalent in our society is because we live in a patriarchal system, and men's violence towards women fits into the gender role that men have been permitted, where they're allowed to be angry, they're allowed to be domineering, they're allowed to kind of keep their partner in line according to traditional values. So when a man is violent to a woman, we see that to some degree as acceptable, especially if the woman is, has done something that violates a gender role. We don't want to admit that we see it as acceptable but we do. In contrast, when a woman uses violence, including to defend herself, that's a violation of the feminine gender role. That's not being meek and submissive. That's not allowing a man to rule your household. And so we respond to that a lot more negatively. Uh, Johnny Depp is, I think, advantaged because we have this idea of a perfect victim and also a perfect perpetrator. And the perfect perpetrator is supposed to be this monster who you can tell that they are evil from 10 miles away. But that version of the perpetrator doesn't exist. Whereas the perfect victim... Is someone who's supposed to never fight back, is supposed to just accept the violence, but also to think it's wrong, to cry, to be weak, to be upset, but not to cry too much or in the wrong moments, it's really hard to fit into that idea of a perfect victim. That person doesn't exist either, but... When you don't fit into the perfect perpetrator stereotype, that's an advantage. People will be on your side. They will like you more. When you don't fit into the perfect victim stereotype, that's a disadvantage. It leads people to think that you're lying or untrustworthy. And that's exactly the dynamic that we're seeing play out in this case.
0: One of the things that I think is really interesting is the number of women who seem to be coming to the defense of Johnny Depp. And particularly, I'm seeing... um, you know, survivors, people who have really strongly identified with the Me Too movement uh, coming to Johnny Depp's defense. Where does that come from? Yeah, this has been so
1: prevalent. I actually wrote an article for Harper's Bazaar on this topic. I think it leads a lot of people to say, oh, I shouldn't believe Amber Heard because survivors don't believe her. And survivors are supposed to be the experts on this type of violence. And so if she doesn't have their support, she must have done something wrong. But in reality, it's really common for survivors to not believe other survivors for a lot of different reasons. One of them is, and this is really simple, is that. Gender-based violence is supposed to reinforce patriarchal norms. It's supposed to make us all more traditional in our gendered beliefs. And so a lot of victims, when they are sexually assaulted, are not feminists. When they enter a violent relationship, they do not already believe much about intimate partner violence at all. They don't know how to recognize it. They don't know what's normal and what's not. And what a lot of victims will encounter later is that they will be blamed for what they experienced. And they might become more conservative in their ideologies. So, for example, in sexual assault, they might be told, you need to dress more modestly. And they might internalize that and say, yeah, what happened to me wouldn't have happened to me if I would have dressed differently. Or I'm a legitimate victim, but other victims really should be hearing these victim-blaming comments. They really do need to change their behavior. It's something I've seen in my research a lot, especially with conservative victims. And then an intimate partner violence, you might hear if you just didn't talk back, if you were just more submissive to your partner, if you let him be the man of the house, he wouldn't have acted this way. So these are really gender traditional beliefs, and they can be intensified through this type of violence.
0: And I think, you know, as much of this conversation, we're not even specifically talking about about Johnny Depp and Amber Heard as much as these cases in general. And so let's like pull out 10,000 feet. What is the impact that this case is going to have? on people reporting intimate partner abuse? I think one big effect of this case that really does
1: scare me is that survivors who have used self-defense and who are currently in abusive relationships – might be more susceptible to a perpetrator's gaslighting when they say, you're the true abuser. You are the problem. If you leave this relationship, you're going to hurt someone else. You need to stay and fix this, which is something that perpetrators say to their victims a lot. And a lot of victims, even before this case, would believe that. They would feel a pressure to stay because they think they're the true problem. And so that's one of the things I'm most concerned about.
0: Uh, one thing that I'm thinking about a lot, even in the time that I've been doing this reporting, which really started for me around 2015, um, but in the last couple of years, there's been a huge risk uh, that I'm hearing from complainants uh, and fear of of being sued for libel or for slander, which is exactly what's playing out here. We have you know, some prominent cases here in Canada where this has happened, and this seems to be a new thing. And I'm wondering if if this isn't going to be in people's minds coming forward, that risk of being sued or just the the spectacle of, of a trial and having all of these details kind of pulled out into the open.
1: Defamation and libel lawsuits are not new to issues of gender-based violence, but it does seem like they have increased in recent years. So the world that I know the best is the American college campus. That's where most of my research is focused. And on American college campuses, there was a study that found that 23% of victims who report to their schools that they have experienced some type of gender-based violence, 23% of victims are threatened with a defamation lawsuit and 10% of victims will have their perpetrator file a complaint about them, accusing them of being the true perpetrator or engaging in some type of similar violence. So this has been happening for a while, but one thing I'll note it about that study is they didn't find any of cases of that happening before 2016. So it does appear that it is on the rise, even though we know it was happening sometimes, especially, you know, among celebrities and people have who are already sort of litigious. Uh, we're starting to see it trickle into the general public.
0: This is something as a reporter that I, I'm really aware of and struggle with in, in writing these these types of stories, but really any story that uh, includes an accusation, an unproven accusation against somebody. You know, I'm extremely aware of the gravity of the situation of putting someone's name in the newspaper attached to serious wrongdoing. And, you know, when, when I've been doing this research and talking to to people on all sides of this. It's this really interesting thing of balancing as a society, our, uh, I think, understanding that we want people to be able to have an opportunity to defend themselves and to have due process um, and, and an ability to defend yourself out of the court system if it's if it's not a, a criminal charge or even in a civil case. And at the same time, this very necessary moments that happened with Me Too where we are having people Being empowered to actually speak their truth and say, I don't have to suffer in silence. I can name what happened to me and in some cases who did it. And how do we balance these two things as a society? What I think the core of this conversation
1: is that we don't actually have a legitimate social structure that tells us whether or not these cases are true, right? So the idea of a proven sexual assault in the criminal justice system, for example, we know that the vast majority of reports of sexual assault to the police are true. And we know that of that group, the vast, vast majority of them Will end in a not guilty verdict. And that's not because the victims are lying. It's because we have a legal system as a whole, whether it's the criminal or the civil justice system, that's likely to re-victimize and re-traumatize victims, that it's more likely to betray them than to give them justice. And so that's a really big issue, is we haven't seen this type of structural change. I also want to say, though, that I think we sometimes are a little bit more sensitive to this on issues of gender-based violence than we would be of even a physical assault. So for example, you this is something that really struck me in my research when I spent a year on a college campus looking at how they handle these different types of student discipline. We don't see the same concerns about due process or this really high bar for who can tell their story when a man has physically assaulted another man. Nobody's going to be accusing someone of defamation for saying, yeah, that guy punched me in a bar
0: last night. We just think that that's your story. And you're allowed to tell it, I guess, though, to that point, you're not you're probably not going to lose your job if you're accused if you're a man and you're accused for beating a guy up at a bar as a society. We're okay with that, whereas on one hand, we're very not okay with sexual violence. But on the other hand, we set a very high bar of believing someone who has said that they are they have been a victim of it.
1: You know, I think that's actually an empirical question and that the answer might be different than we expect. In my research, I found that men were much more likely to be expelled from their university for getting into a bar fight than they were for sexual assault. And so I think because there's so much media attention and we talk a lot about the potential consequences for men committing acts of violence against women, we think we take
0: it seriously. But I don't know that we really do. Oh, that's so interesting. Um one thing for me that I found really interesting when I wrote my book on Me Too and I did a book tour and would speak to, you know, big crowds. And afterwards, these are people who voluntarily came to a, a book talk about Me Too. Like they're very, you know, you would slate them in the progressive bucket. I was always surprised by the number of people afterwards that would come up to me, sometimes men, um, but sometimes mothers of, of boys who would say, I'm totally on side, this is great, this needs to happen, thank you so much for this work, et cetera, et cetera. I'm really afraid of what happens if my son gets gets accused at, you know, he's going to college next year. Or a man saying, I, I'm totally on side, and at the same time, what do I do if someone accuses me of something that I didn't do? And, you know, we know false accusations are extremely rare. We know you are much more likely to be a victim of sexual violence um, Than to be falsely accused. And yet this fear looms so large in people's minds. Um, Where does that come from? I think part of it, this actually touches on one of my early research
1: projects, which is there's this myth that sexual violence, even if it really happened, was a miscommunication. And that the perpetrators are not doing this on purpose. They are good men who made a mistake because we don't have good sex education or because they were intoxicated at the time of the assault, but that they would never do that otherwise. And... Research has actually demonstrated that that isn't true over and over and over again since the 80s, that actually men are very capable of reading women's signals of withdrawing consent or saying that they're uninterested, but that sometimes they ignore them. And that ignoring them is an intentional decision, something that I say a lot when I talk to men because I, too hear these kinds of comments when I speak. And something that I say a lot is, you know, I've interviewed victims, perpetrators, and the investigators who oversee their cases. And one of the first questions I always ask when I meet with perpetrators is, when you were accused, did you know what it was about? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. They have an inkling that something went wrong. And so I think this is useful to think about, could I be falsely accused or not? Because... In my experience as a researcher, men can point to those encounters and say, that wasn't great. <laughs> that wasn't my right, best right. behavior. They might not label it as sexual assault or intimate partner violence, but they can recognize that there's some shame there. They're not going and sharing this story. They know they've done something wrong. And I say this as a way to to change this conversation, to say this is not something that happens on accident. When men are accused... It, does not come out of nowhere. It is something that it's connected in reality and men are in that reality too. Um, I do think, I think the mothers are a really interesting case because there's this sense of guilt that if my son could commit an act of violence like that, I have been a bad parent. This is a little bit of a tangent, but I think it's an important one. Um, A friend of a friend reached out to me because their son had been accused of sexual assault is a a child, I think, in fourth or fifth grade. And there was no ambiguity. He had done exactly what he was accused of. He had grabbed uh, a girl in a private part of her body and pushed her and it, it knocked all the other kids down in the classroom. They were standing in line. So everybody knew exactly what had happened. But the parents were looking for information about how to sue the school because they thought it was unfair that he had received detention over this, which detention's pretty lenient. (laughs) But my reaction to this was, what an important and powerful learning moment to be able to talk to your child about the responsibility to to get consent, the responsibility to respect others' bodily autonomy. And instead, the gut reaction in our society is, defend my son, no matter what, uh, And I think that the opposite approach is the way is the right
0: way to do it, to say this is this is a teaching moment. The idea of intimate partner violence being kind of a mainstream thing that we're talking about, I think, is pretty new. Is there any good that can come out of this case that at the very least we are seeing a high profile case get to court, being taken seriously, being discussed in the public and having these kinds of more nuanced conversations about what it all means? I think that's up to us, whether this case ends up
1: being a good thing or a bad thing for the Me Too movement, for feminism, for survivors as a group. And I do think that there are some things big important teaching moments coming from this case. First of which is that the Me Too movement and a lot of our public discussions about gender-based violence focus on sexual assault and workplace sexual harassment. We still have a long way to go in just learning about what intimate partner violence is and how to support survivors when they have experienced it, how to intervene when you are the neighbor living next door or the friend who's hearing some concerning stories from either the perpetrator or the victim, because you probably know both of them. So that's really important. And one thing that I hope we can take away from this as well is that we really do need structural change to keep the gains of movements like the Me Too movement. That. For example, one of the reasons that this case blew up on TikTok is because a lot of TikTok users are pretty young, and a lot of them were actually too young to be paying attention to the media when Me Too was grabbing headlines. And so all of this education that many of us did in public did not trickle down. We don't want to have to re-educate each new generation through a high-profile case like this one. We need comprehensive sex education that includes information about intimate partner violence and healthy relationships. And then the other thing that we could take out of this case is recognizing that our legal system can still be used as a weapon by perpetrators to extend their abuse. These types of defamation cases as punishment for victims that have gotten away is not new. It's increasingly common, and we need to intervene on that. Our legal system should not be used this way. In fact, our legal system as a whole needs a giant overhaul to ensure that survivors are not re-traumatized when going through the process of coming forward, which right now survivors, I would almost venture to say unanimously, experience coming forward as a negative thing. Nicole, thank you so
0: much for being here.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: That's it for today. I'm Robin Doolittle. Our producers are Madeline White, Cheryl Sutherland, and Rachel Levy-McLaughlin. David Crosby edits the show. Kasia Mihailovich is our senior producer. And Angela Pacenza is our executive editor. Thank you for listening.